there are some things that you would be surprised to read about in the Bible. Well, this morning we get to hear one of those things. Uh, Paul talks about what it means to drink with demons. And when you're reading through the Bible, you don't expect Paul to write about drinking with demons, but the text at hand is one of those. Paul has been writing about unity in the church. He has been admonishing the church in Corinth toward unity, unity through maturity. He's been admonishing them not just to know more, because uh, knowledge puffs up, right? We've seen that in 1 Corinthians. Knowledge puffs up, beloved edifies. So not just to know more, but to understand more. And in today's passage, he continues his illustration concerning Christian liberty. His admonishing, admonition to the church at Corinth concerning Christian liberty that he started in chapters 8 and 9. And he has taught explicitly about Christian liberty. And he has given an illustration concerning Christian liberty. And today he closes out his section on Christian liberty. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15 through 33. I'll read the passage first, and then we will dive into it together. Chapter 10, verse 15. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols has anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you, and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many." so that they may be saved. In chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for everything you do. Thank you for meeting us in this place. Thank you for the work you have begun here in Douglas, through Douglas Reformed Church. Lord, we pray that you bless the work of our hands. We pray that you bless this ministry endeavor. We pray that those churches in Douglas who are healthy churches are participating in your work with us. We pray that false religion here is exposed for what it is. We pray that this morning you turn our hearts to you. Open our eyes, give us ears to hear, minds to understand. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Lead us closer to you. Increase not only our knowledge, but our understanding. Lord, we love you. And that is why we are here, sitting at your feet. Lord, may I speak your words this morning. 
and exposit your words this morning rather than any philosophy of man. Lord, I love you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this passage is a little interesting. There are a couple verses here, and you heard them. You probably were able to pick them out that have been used quite often. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I hear that uh, quite a bit. And Paul here, he's, he's talking to a local church about the difference between communing with Christ and communing with demons. Eating and drinking with Christ, that which belongs to Christ, and eating and drinking with, with demons. Um, sharing in Christ or sharing in demons. And Paul writing to a local church about this uh, is a warning to the local church not to commune with demons. So as believers in Christ, we probably ought to listen to Paul's words here. Of course, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is a matter not only of church unity, but also of salvation. As we have seen through chapters 9 and 10, Paul makes this a salvific matter. Chapter 10, verse 15, I speak as to wise men. Now, we already know that there are some knowledgeable people in the church at Corinth. When you look at chapter 8, verse verse 1, we see that knowledge makes arrogant. This is Paul's admonition to the church at Corinth. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. There are some knowledgeable people in the church at Corinth. And so Paul, he is writing to the church at Corinth as if they are also wise men. Paul here means to say that, church, you should get this. You haven't gotten this. You should get this. All that knowledge you have, that should work together, not only in your brain where you store information, but also in your hearts. Like that knowledge should affect you. And in wisdom, you should understand the things that I am about to teach you. So so I speak as to wise men. And then he challenges the church. You judge what I say. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. Paul is defending himself against those who examine him. Examine there, meaning as if in a law court, people are judging Paul by his actions, by the things he takes into his mouth, into his stomach. They are judging the way he does ministry, identifying with wretched sinners outside the walls of the church. They are judging him as if he is in a law court. The word judge here in chapter 10 verse 15 means the same thing, as if in a law court. So, so Paul is saying to those who are already examining him, already judging him, he is, he's saying, hey, look a little closer. Let me speak to you as if you were wise. Judge me according to this standard, not the standard you have been using. To to those who are judging him as if in a law court, Paul is saying, look a little closer. Look a little deeper. Judge me by an actual standard. Judge me by the things coming out of my mouth rather than the things going into my mouth. Which seems to be a lot like what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Like like the root actually produces the fruit. What comes out of a person's mouth reveals who they are. What goes in, food and drink, that doesn't reveal who a person is. Whether a person is elect or not, but what comes out does. So Paul here is saying, judge me by a righteous standard. Judge me by my fruit. Not, not by the fruit that I eat, but by the fruit that comes out of my mouth, by the fruit that I bear, right? Judge me by the standard Christ gave us to judge one another. Paul isn't saying, don't judge me. He's saying, no, if, if you're going to judge me, do it in a way that matters. Do it in a way that is honest. Do it in a way that is truthful and sincere. Judge me by my words, by what I say the fruit coming out of my mouth. For Paul, this is a matter of his teaching. Is the gospel coming out of my mouth a correct gospel? Judge me by that. For the Corinthians, the the, the group to whom Paul is writing, 
It's how they're treating outsiders, how they're treating sinners, how they're treating those outside the walls of the church, how they're condemning them, being condescending of them rather than condescending to them. Their failure to identify with sinners, that's fruit coming out of their mouths. How they say, oh, how dare the world live this way? Oh, how dare sinners act like sinners? Oh, if they only knew that they were condemning themselves and that they were all going to hell and they're, they're hiding behind their church walls saying all these terrible things about the world and being very critical and complainy. That's an academic term, complainy. Instead of identifying with sinners and going to sinners. Instead of just expecting, setting up in their pristine church building with their group of pious people and saying, hey, you outside world, you must come in here to be saved. And doing that instead of going and drinking with sinners and eating with sinners and being with sinners and loving sinners. The fruit of their lives condemned them, yet they, yet they condemned Paul because of what he was eating and drinking rather than by the righteous standard that Christ gave us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, judging by the fruit that comes out of one's mouth, because that's what actually defiles a person. And Paul continues his rhetoric about Christian liberty and unity in the body. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless? This is a reference to the cup of communion, the cup of wine that would be observed. This is not the first time Paul has mentioned communion, the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians. It is not the last time he will go back to communion in 1 Corinthians. There is a communion theme through 1 Corinthians. It's no accident that a letter about basic ecclesiology, about healthy ecclesiology, that's the structure of the church, and the polity of the church, the running of the church, what we, what we do when we're gathered as the church. A book about that is strong with communion ideology. It's full of, of the, this communion theme, the theme of the Eucharist. Paul refers to it again here. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, a sharing in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there was one bread, what is that one bread that is broken? Christ's body. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now I want you to notice something here. And this, this idea of sharing in the blood and the body of Christ. What does it mean to share in the blood and the body of Christ? You go to quite a few churches, especially in the Western world, and they take a memorial view of communion. A memorial view of communion is something like this. We eat the bread and we drink the fruit of the vine. Most of the time it's distilled wine, grape juice, okay? Welch's. That is not a plug for Welch's. <laughs> they did not pay me for that, okay? That's what we drink in most churches. In fact, I think the reason we use Welch's in most churches is because of some marketing campaign by the Welch's company, all right? Sometime in the past, all right? I think that's why, because they marketed it so well. <laughs> churches started using it instead of wine. They took advantage of some bias against alcohol, right? A long time ago. And they made a lot of money. The whole thing was about money. And the memorial view states that we drink that, the, the grape juice, and we eat the bread merely in memory, in remembrance of what Christ did. And sure, Christ taught us as often as you eat and drink this, do so in remembrance of me. We don't discount that. We do remember Christ every time we eat and drink the bread and the wine. But if we're merely doing it in memory of what Christ did, communion can be observed in any context and we still remember Christ. 
if we are merely remembering what Christ did, there's no sharing in Christ through communion. They're just remembering what Christ did rather than sharing in what he is doing. But you see the language here in 1 Corinthians. Paul's talking about sharing, sharing in Christ through communion, the communion that's, that's practiced in the context of the local church, the, the church at Corinth, sharing in Christ. Like there's, there's, there's something substantive here. This is an, an actual application in some way of, of the means of grace, or this is a means of grace in some way. So the opposite view from the memorial view would be transubstantiation, which would be the Roman Catholic view, right? That the, the bread becomes Christ's body, and the wine becomes the blood of Christ, and when we partake of that, we are sharing in Christ, okay? Huh. Notice the language here. It doesn't say we are consuming Christ. It says we are sharing in Christ. I think there is a difference, right? I wouldn't go as far as transubstantiation. That's kind of weird. Seems a little cultish to me. Plus, we're thinking about the fact that Christ is who? God. Christ is God. Can God be contained by anything? Well, if he could be contained by anything, he would not be God. So to say that the bread and the wine contain Christ in any way is, a, is an insult to his sovereignty, an insult to his identity as God. Hmm. There's a third view consubstantiation. I think at least we have to land on consubstantiation, if not somewhere between consubstantiation and transubstantiation. Consubstantiation means Christ is with the substance. His presence is near. His presence is here. And when we drink of the cup, Christ drinks of the cup with us. And Christ is drinking the wine with us. Well, now we have a problem. Because in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Christ says, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay? Yet, Paul says we are sharers in the blood of Christ as we observe this meal. Christ says we are sharers with one another in Christ. As if Christ is drinking this and eating this with us. But Christ said he would not until the kingdom of God comes. Why do we observe communion every week? What's the, what's the reason, the purpose? Most Christians will say, because Jesus told us to. Yes, that is true. But if Christ is currently abstaining, should we not be abstaining with him? It seems odd to observe communion if Christ himself is not communing with us. There's no power in it. This is historically why dispensationals observe the memorial view of communion. It's why premillennials observe a memorial view of communion, because we're not eating and drinking with Christ. We're eating and drinking in remembrance of what Christ did, because he is abstaining right now. But if Christ is our Lord and we are to be like him, should we not be doing what he is doing? Well, Christ claimed that the kingdom was at hand. Paul in 1 Corinthians so far has revealed that he believes the kingdom is at hand. It's taking over the world through the local church. The sanctification of the church is happening now. And, and the weeds are being separated from the, from the wheat now. And the goats are being sifted from the lambs now. That's what Paul has been getting at in 1 Corinthians. So when he says we are sharing in the blood of Christ, and we are sharing in Christ's body, the bread, 
we're sharing with Christ in these things, he's quite literally saying Christ is dominating the earth. We have no reason to observe communion if Christ is not taking the world over. Which is why we have started using leavened bread during our communion times. Right? That leaven represents the the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven overtaking the world. And when Christ said, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, he didn't say how long that would be. And at the moment of crucifixion, and at the moment of resurrection, and suddenly in the 40 days following his resurrection, I imagine he had a cup with his disciples. And I imagine he eats and drinks with us now. There is power here. This is a means of grace here. This is substantial. We actually share with Christ when we eat and drink this meal. Christ is at the table with us. Christ eats and drinks with us. And it is through communion, this this sharing in Christ that the church experiences unity. Look at verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You want to be mature in Christ, understand communion. Understand what it means not just to commune, to remember Christ. Uh, That could cause division pretty quickly, right? Because uh, it doesn't matter now. Me being sanctified on this earth doesn't matter because the kingdom of God isn't established. If the kingdom of God isn't established, there's no sanctification happening. There's no kingdom growth happening. There's no reason to practice evangelism. There's no reason to observe communion. In fact, there's really no reason for baptism if Christ's kingdom is not already established, right? But if, if Christ's kingdom is established, well, now we have something to talk about. And now we have a reason to gather as the local church for our sanctification. Why? Because the kingdom is here. For the purpose of evangelism. Why? Because the kingdom is expanding. For the purpose of observing communion. Why? To share with Christ as He, through the power of His broken body and poured out blood, takes over the world by means of the gospel. Paul refers to another illustration. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Now, if we want to take a transubstantive view of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, we would have to say that the Old Testament sacrifices saved and maintained the salvation of individuals within national Israel. Nobody makes that claim. Nobody wants to go as far as to say those sacrifices really saved people and maintained their salvation. Why? Because the New Testament makes a clarification for us. They didn't have power to save you. It was still God doing the work, right? Think about 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 and following. Solomon builds this amazing temple. And he prays over the temple. He praises God for providing the resources to build this temple. And he concedes that this temple in no way can contain God. The temple where the national sacrifices of Israel would take place. This temple cannot contain God. So God, please let your presence rest here. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it was consubstantive. (laughs) Huh. And then Paul here says, you observe communion. Modern day church, you observe communion. It is like the sacrifice of the Old Testament, where God was not contained in any element, in any building, but his presence was there with the people. It's where his presence dwelt. And now his presence is with you in communion. And just as they, before A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, right? By God's will, by God's plan, because his kingdom is bigger than a temple. And he cannot only be worshipped on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. 
So when God willed and caused the temple to be destroyed in A.D. 70, all that's left is sharing in Christ and in communion the same way people shared in the sacrifices before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Not such that God is in any way contained in the elements, but that He is present with the elements, that Christ eats and drinks with us. This is Paul's illustration. This is how we know the apostles were basically consubstantial in their view of communion, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper. I'm glad to see a revival of this view in our time with modern-day reformers like ourselves. Verse 18 What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. Paul, where did this come from? This seems kind of out of place. You're talking about sacrifices that were made to God and then you're clarifying by making sure people don't don't think you, you mean that you're talking about things sacrificed to idols. You didn't even say anything about idols. Well, yes, he did. That was in a previous passage that we're not covering today. That's why we read the passages in context, right? Do you remember what Paul said about idols? Well, he was answering a question that the Corinthians had. Is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Paul said, yes. What was his argument? Do you remember? Idols don't actually exist, therefore it's impossible to actually have something sacrificed to idols, therefore it's impossible to defile yourself by eating something that has been sacrificed to so-called idols or other gods. So here he just wants people to know, he's reminding them, what do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no, but I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they, Gentiles here, generally meaning unbelievers, right? Gentile sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Paul, you just said, you just said not to worry about it. Paul, you just said that it was okay for us to eat the meat that has been sacrificed to so-called false gods. now, Now you're calling them demons, and now you're saying not to be sharers in demons. What Paul is saying here is that those who worship God do not make the sacrifices to so-called other gods. They are not idolaters. If we partake in meat that has been sacrificed to idols, that is not the same as making the sacrifice, right? If we partake in things that the world provides, that is not the same thing as worshiping the things that the world provides, making an idol out of them. If we partake in business and markets and commerce, we are not in sin because we have not worshipped those things or made our lives about those things. If we partake in the world's music, if we partake in owning property like the world owns property, we are not in sin at that point because we have not worshipped those things, I hope, right? If we partake in the delectable food and the amazing drinks that the world produces, we are not in sin so long as we do not worship those things or have not worshipped those things. Well, how do you worship those things? By actually being a glutton and a drunkard. By being a workaholic or even by being lazy. That would be idolatry of some kind, right? By promoting ourselves or using the things of the world to glorify self rather than God. That would be idolatry of self, which Paul addressed in the previous pericope, where we were at last week. He says, I don't want you to become, I don't want you to become sharers with demons and not God. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Cannot. It's impossible to do both. If we are in communion with Christ, cannot be in communion with 
demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It is impossible. This is a statement of ability. That's the word cannot. It's a statement of ability. Not a statement concerning workspace righteousness like, oh, if you go over here and, and start worshiping an idol, you're going to lose your salvation because you can't commune with the Lord. No, it's not that. It's no, when we are in Christ, when we are in communion with Christ, we no longer have the ability in us to commune with demons. It is impossible for us to do that. It's a statement of ability here. Or, and Paul poses an interesting question. Remember, concerning, concerning the, the, the Corinthians' tendency to belittle those outside of the church. When we look at the broader context, that's what he's talking about failing to identify with wretches, instead pretending to be super-Christian, super-pious. And Paul poses this question, a rhetorical question, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Church, is it possible to provoke the Lord? Hmm. Well, we can pull this question out of context. This is the other, the other text I was trying to remember earlier, all right? trying to recall. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Well, some Christians will take a verse like this, a question like that, and they'll pluck it from its context and say, oh, you don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy. That is a, that is a bad idea. That's how churches get burned to the ground with fire from heaven. That's how a bunch of people start getting sick and dying, because you provoke the Lord to jealousy. Is it possible to provoke the Lord? Well, let me run a certain dilemma by you. Okay, if we say, yes, it is possible to provoke the Lord. We say that the Lord is changeable. We insinuate that he is mutable. We insinuate that in some way we have control over God because we are provoking him. Yeah? So, my first... My first inkling is, no, it's not possible to provoke the Lord because then he wouldn't be the Lord. But then how does Paul ask a question like this? Oh, don't be sharers with demons. Don't commit idolatry. Do you think that, do you think that we're provoking the Lord to, to jealousy? And we hear all the time, God is a jealous God, right? But look at how Paul answers his own question. Well, he, he answers it with another question. Look at this. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? His answer to his own question is, of course we don't provoke the Lord to jealousy because we're not stronger than him. Well, this seems commonsensical. If we only read the very next sentence, we wouldn't have wasted all of our time asking those questions we just asked. Right. We're not stronger than God, so you can't provoke him. Huh. Interesting. Look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. The Old Testament actually calls God jealous. So it is true God is jealous. He is a jealous God. But he is not provoked to jealousy. The jealousy is one of God's attributes. God is always and righteously jealous. He has the right to always be jealous because creation is him and it belongs to him. He longs for it. He desires it. And on one hand, it should make us feel great. Like, like if your husband is, is jealous for you, that makes you feel good. And God is jealous for us, not as a matter of being provoked in anger, but he's just jealous for us. He just wants us. He just desires us. That's who he is in relationship with his creation, the economy of God. Part of that is jealousy for his creation and for his people. 
And he is not provoked to that. He just is that. He is jealous. So we don't provoke God to jealousy. That would be silly. Even according to Paul's words here, this is common sense, guys. I'm going to speak to you like, like you're wise. Figure this out. You should understand this. We are not stronger than God. We do not provoke him to jealousy. No, this is a matter of your hearts and the work that God has done in your hearts. If you are worshiping idols, if you are sharing with demons, if you're drinking with demons, that's something that comes out of your heart and is evidenced by what flows forth from your mouth. But what goes into a person, as we'll see in verse 26, what goes into a person cannot defile a person. Why? God is not provoked. He owns everything. If he owns everything, what? There's, there's nothing to partake in that isn't, isn't his, doesn't belong to Christ, isn't inherited by Christ, and if we are in Christ, belongs to us. That's what we realize when we talk about Christian liberty and our freedom in Christ to partake of food and drink, according to Paul here. We are not strong. Thank the Lord we are not stronger than Him. Verse 23, all things are lawful. Why? Christ owns it. God owns it. All things are lawful. I can, I can eat and drink whatever I want. I'm not worshiping it. I'm not partaking with demons. But partaking in things that are owned by Christ. Because, because His kingdom is overtaking the world. He has taken it under his dominion. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Oh, is Paul here giving Christians a, a new standard by which they live? Like, Christ comes to us. And, and here's the difference, right? Those who are not in Christ may be religious, may claim to be Christians, may claim to have eternal life, may claim to be saved, but are not actually in Christ, they view the world through moralistic lenses. Okay? They live in such a way, looking at the boundaries and saying, how close can I get without going over the edge? And then Scripture comes and says, hey, you worship the God who owns everything. There are no boundaries for you any longer. The Christian is different. The moralistic lenses have been removed. But not all things are profitable. There's a, the Christian way of thinking is different. Not what can I get away with? How close can I get to the edge? How far before I lose my salvation? Or the Christian way of thinking isn't what must I do to gain the blessings of God? That's not the Christian way of thinking. The Christian way of thinking isn't, how can I be pious enough to live a good religious life, to, to please God? How can I use fewer cuss words? How can I stop complaining so much because that's how I please God? What, what drinks can I stay away from in, in, order to, in order to really get on God's good side? What, what words do I have to speak? Do I have to go down a church aisle and speak some words in order to receive salvation, in order to gain salvation, obtain salvation for myself? Do I, do I have to get in the baptistry? Do I, have to, do I have to speak in tongues? Do I have to observe communion in order to be saved? Do I have to get baptized into the Catholic Church in order to be saved? And we spend all of our time looking through these moralistic lenses, and Paul here says... There is no boundary for those who are actually in Christ. You don't have to ask any of those questions. Here's your focus. And it's a, s a simpler way to think. What is profitable? What edifies others? And it's not just this, what can I gain by doing what I do? That's kind of narcissistic. But see, the emphasis here is on others. If I am in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is changing my heart, my focus isn't, isn't on what can I do to be religious enough for God. Quite literally, the Holy Spirit takes our focus 
turns it from being an, such an inward moralistic focus to being, an, to being outwardly focused on others. Such that whatever we do, we're considering how, how does this profit others? How does this edify others? And those particularly in view here are those outside the church. Almost as if the local church was put here to impact the world in a way that is edifying. Interesting to me. That's what post-millennial eschatology is all about. Christians impacting the world in a way that edifies people even outside the church. Almost like God is good to sinners or something like that. Yeah? That's what Paul is admonishing the church. This church had become inward focus. It's all about me. My religion, my expectation. We've been talking about this, right? My pleasures, my preferences, my sensibilities. My piousness. My not going past the moral boundary. Because that's what it takes to, to, to obtain and maintain my salvation. That's not what it's about. Instead, Christ removes that moral boundary, writes the law on our hearts, and focuses our attention outwardly so that we live to profit others. And, and the whole bend of this text, Paul's argument here, involves how we identify with those wretches outside the church walls, the proverbial church walls, or in the case of the believers at Corinth, the literal church walls, because quite literally use the walls to block themselves off from society, right? Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Oh. You mean if I have a problem with somebody, if somebody's not meeting my expectations, if somebody's not doing what I think they need to be doing, it doesn't matter. Because I'm not to seek my own good, but, those, but, but the good of my neighbor? Huh. In fact, that's what Christ draws us to, and that's what the Holy Spirit works out in our hearts. Verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. Paul has already addressed this question, but he returns to it. Don't feel, just, you don't have the same moral boundaries that the world has because God is writing His law in your heart. His kingdom is here. Your concern is about profiting others, edifying others. Don't feel guilty about going to the marketplace and getting some meat. Don't feel guilty about the stuff that goes into your body. No, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will produce good fruit. You are producing fruit. You don't have to worry about the fruit that you're eating because you're producing fruit. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Huh. God owns the world. And there are many people out there calling what God owns and what God causes his earth to produce evil and sinful. That seems like it'd be kind of insulting to God. Doesn't it? To say, God, look at all this amazing fruit your earth produces. Look at all these amazing animals. And God, you've given us taste buds to, to taste meat that is cooked well. You've given us a palate to enjoy fine wine. You've given so many good things, and you've given technology, and you've given buildings. You've given us you've given us skin that is capable of filling textures, and you've given all these amazing textures. And you've given us eyes to look into the heavens and contemplate your glory, your magnificence. You've given us the ability to perceive color, to hear sound, amazing sounds. You've given us music to enjoy. And to say and to say, nah, stay away from that. It dishonors God. 
And meanwhile, the Scriptures speak so clearly about this. God owns it. God made it. God loves beauty. God loves taste. God loves feeling. God loves sound. And he loves rhythm and he loves art. Don't call what the Lord has made evil. And Jesus came eating and drinking. He, he t- assuming a human nature and a human flesh so that he could experience what he created, the way he created it to be experienced. You think God didn't mean to do that? And Christ came eating and drinking, enjoying what is his by nature of his kingdom coming to earth. For the earth is the Lord's and all things it contains. Those in the Old Testament sang about this. They sang, look at all the good things the Lord has given. He has all things. Let's enjoy his creation. You see Psalm 24 and Psalm 50. And then we even look to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. I'll start reading in verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Okay, this sounds a little familiar. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. Conscience? Oh, that sounds familiar too. Like Paul is talking about the same thing in another letter. Seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage. Men who forbid. Forbid this. Forbid that. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The going out of the gospel, the overtaking of this world by the kingdom of heaven, it is sanctified. And so it is wrong to abstain. It is not praise to God. It does not recognize God for who he is or what he is doing. And then verse 27, oh, this will get on a lot of people's nerves that Paul actually gave this kind of instruction. This goes against the sensibilities of so much modern Christianity. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Unbelievers? If they invite you to go to that place we think you should stay away from, Paul says go. They invite you over to their house and they sit in front of you, bacon and a beer. Paul says take it. For conscience sake, don't ask questions. Just don't focus so much on the moralistic boundaries human religion sets for you. God has given another standard by which to live. Don't ask questions. Just... Just enjoy it with them. You don't have to sin to enjoy that with them, right? Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. Why? Because our interest is in profiting others and and edifying others. It would not be a sin for us to partake, even if somebody discloses that. It wouldn't be sin, but it is sin for us not to consider others, edifying them and profiting them. In fact, the way the Christian lives is to edify and profit others, not self. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you because, because they think there's something substantive about sacrificing to idols and there's not. And you don't want to leave them where they're at, but you actually want to strengthen their conscience. You actually want to bring them to a proper understanding you don't want to leave them in, the, in their weakness, the, the weakness of unbelief and of belief in idols. 
for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. And then Paul clarifies, I mean, not your own conscience, because your own conscience is clean. That's not wrong for you. You already know that there really are no other gods, and there's, there's no way this could have been sacrificed. You already know that. But the other man's conscience, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? We are free. But by nature now, because of the Holy Spirit within us, we want to edify and profit others. So when we abstain, we don't abstain because it is required of us. We abstain because it's good for others at certain times. Not so they can remain in their weakness or in their unbelief, but for the purpose of the gospel. So that they might come to Christ and the Holy Spirit might do this redeeming work in them and redeem, redeem all those around us from this moralistic view of religion and of life in Christ, of Christianity. But if anyone says to you, this meat, sacrifice to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for his conscience's sake. Verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Again, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, we know it is right for us to partake with thankfulness. And those who slander us because of what we partake of, we see something coming out of their mouth that actually defiles them, right? And that, that slander coming out of their mouths, that's, that's what it means to partake with demons. That's what it mean, means not to be in Christ, but to, be, but to be so concerned with your own piety and the piety of others that you actually disqualify yourself from partaking with Christ in the gospel, from sharing with Christ. Remember, you cannot share with Christ and demons. So slanderers are not partaking with Christ. They are producing rotten fruit rather than the fruit of salvation. That is not what goes in to the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. We continue to see this idea present in the text. Why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? It shouldn't be that way, right? If you, if you really are in Christ, it shouldn't be that way. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he doesn't say don't do that. Paul doesn't point fingers. He doesn't give this moralistic formula. Instead he says, hey, Whatever you do, just do it to the glory of God. Just do it to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks. Why? Because we want to profit others. Or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things. And this isn't the type of please like, like you're appeasing people, right? It's not that kind of please. No, no this kind of please is conceding to their moral sensibilities for a time so that they might be strengthened and edified. Please all men in all things so that they might be edified, so that they might profit. In fact, Paul clarifies this statement by saying, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. So I will honor your moral sensibilities, your conscience for a time so that I can share the gospel with you, so that I can see your conscience strengthened. But understand, when you come to Christ, Christ isn't interested in what pleases you. Christ is interested in conforming you to what pleases Him. In fact, we're being conformed to the very image of Christ, and Christ is the one who does that. And Paul says, I do this so they may be saved. When people become saved, oh, there's, there's no need for this anymore because people got saved. The, the goal has been reached, right? I see you come to salvation means the Holy Spirit's in your heart and the Holy Spirit is working. He's strengthening your consciences and now you have the same liberties that I have because you're not bound by your moralistic human religion. Which is interesting because Paul says Gives no, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Here obviously referring to the visible church and understanding that there are those in the visible church who are not saved and he's honoring their consciences so that they may be saved. So we understand when Scripture talks about us honoring the convictions of others, honoring the consciences of others, it primarily refers to those who are not saved, not necessarily to brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Because brothers and sisters in Christ have been freed, have liberty. And so we seek sanctification and the strengthening of consciences and liberty in Christ. But those who do not really know Christ, we seek to honor their convictions. Why? Because we identify with them. We condescend to them, not condescending of them. We condescend to them. We empty ourselves and profit them. And this, I think, is a very important distinction to notice within this chapter, within this entire section on Christian liberty, because some people will take it and apply it across the board as if we are to leave weak brothers and sisters where they're at, and that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about honoring the convictions of unbelievers, those who are not yet saved. In chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And I hear this plucked from its context too, saying, how, why would we imitate Paul? Paul is saying, I am of Christ. I have this heart. I identify with sinners. I enjoy Christian liberty, but I live to edify others. Imitate that. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, do you do anything in this life? Do you work? Do you teach? Do you play? Do you watch television? Do you listen to music? Do you eat? Do you drink? Do you rest? Do you buy? Do you purchase? Do you sell? Do all things to the glory of God rather than self. If we look back on anything that we do in life and we don't see how this thing is working to help us to accomplish gospel purpose, how this isn't leading to gospel opportunities, we ought to seriously think as to whether or not we're actually doing that for the glory of God or self, right? And we can say anything is to the glory of God. But look at the context here, living to the glory of God, doing everything that we do and eating and drinking to the glory of God if it's not so that they may be saved, it's not really to the glory of God. Because we are not actively pursuing the advancing of His kingdom. We can do business and we can buy and sell. We can get money. Never work towards sharing the gospel. Those we work with, those we are around, those whose houses we go to, relationships we are building, people in those relationships. We can never get around to sharing the gospel with our employees or employers. And what we are doing can benefit us financially or can win us worldly friends, can cause people to like us in some way. But if it's not actually working toward gospel purposes, not to the glory of God. So when we talk about living to the glory of God, everything we do, everything we do is saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our identifying with others and our eating and our drinking saturated with the gospel so that gospel opportunities may be afforded to us and we take advantage of that. This being said, we pray, Lord, God, Father, holy is your name. We ask that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that you provide our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins. As we also Forgive others. And deliver us, Lord, from evil. Particularly here, the evil of idolatry. Whether that's actual idol worship or worship of self. God, we do not want to share with demons. We want to share with you. We do not want to drink with demons. We want to drink with you. We do not want to commune with demons. We want to commune with you. 
So God, deliver us from evil. We pray to see your kingdom coming on this earth as it is in heaven. We love you and thank you for everything. In Jesus' name.